Well, great to be back here tonight, huh? Finally together when it's dark outside. This is kind of nice. Well, let's take our Bibles and uh, turn in them to a, a book we studied long, long ago. The Gospel of John. John chapter 21. It's where we find ourselves tonight. I normally don't spend one message on one chapter, but that's what I'm going to do tonight because it lends itself to that in this book. So I'll ask you to bow with me for a word of prayer as we just devote our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you again to have this privileged opportunity to be together and to study together your word. Lord, we love you. And we want to uh, see that love for you reflected in our own lives. And so as we evaluate that tonight through the reality of what your word says, may it be used in us to affect us, to change us, to shape us, cause us to be what you would have us to be. So that like we heard tonight in the testimony of many, as the testimony goes out through Jesus Christ, that others would see it not just in our words, but in our lives. That they might know you and that you would be glorified by many, many more people. To that end, we pray and we trust that you will attend to our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Well, like I said, it's been a long time since we have been in our study of the Gospel of John. And sometimes, uh, I, as I was looking at this recently, I was wondering how, how much we may have forgotten simply because of the time that has passed uh, I, I thought, man, I, I, I wonder if we remember what has taken place in John. And since the time that we were here last time, the tendency is for the flesh to forget when time passes. As time goes on, it fades. The more we are away, the more we tend to forget. And we forget for a whole lot of reasons, the passage of time being one of them, but one of the other things and reasons why we forget is that we allow ourselves to get distracted. We allow ourselves to be influenced by all of those things that are available around us. There's so much coming at us as we live each given day, so many other things that are available to us, and we allow ourselves to be distracted away from what is most important. And so I trust we will remember the overall thrust of John's gospel, why he gave it to us. It's stated for us here in the last two verses of John chapter 20, where John says, Many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Of course, these aren't the only things that Jesus did. John, in fact, says at the end of this very book, there are also many other things. Chapter 21, verse 25, there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail... I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. We have a lot of proof, a lot of testimony, a lot of eyewitness testimony as we've seen, even looked at this morning. John's purpose, of course, in writing to us the gospel was so that we might believe in Jesus Christ, that all might believe all that God has said concerning His Son, who He is, what He has done, why He came, who we are in our own sinfulness, and that He will save us from our sin if we would repent and believe. And the two ways that saving belief manifests itself in the life of a person who believes upon Jesus Christ is really through the expression of love and obedience, love and obedience. And so that is simply just to say 
that to love Jesus Christ is to entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. That's what faith is, entrustment to Jesus Christ. To say you love Jesus Christ is to say that you have entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, and therefore true belief in Jesus Christ, as John would hope that we would have, i.e. to love Jesus, shows itself in obedience to Jesus. Of course, this is the very thing that Jesus said to the disciples back in John chapter 13. If you love me, you will what? You'll keep my commandments. In other words, if you say you believe me, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. It's about as simple as it gets, isn't it? It's about as simple as the gospel gets, really, about faith in Jesus Christ. If you love Jesus Christ... You'll obey Jesus Christ. To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. True belief is seen in obedience. It's the biblical principle. And yet as we sit here tonight as Christians, the reality is that we fail to love Jesus as we ought to love Jesus. We fail to obey Jesus. We allow all kinds of other things to distract us in our love. According to the Scriptures, we are commanded to love with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole being. But as Christians, we fail. We don't. We don't do as we ought. And we see it today in the church where we allow all kinds of other things to get in the way of our love for Jesus Christ. All kinds of other things to distract us and to confuse us, if you will, to cause us or to tempt us to go in other directions. Instead of Jesus Christ being our priority in all of life, He gets relegated to one of the many other things. Or one of many different things. And that's simply to say that in the minds and hearts of many a professing Christian, obedience to Jesus Christ no longer trumps all the other things. Obedience to Jesus Christ is relegated to just one thing that I might do in life. Rather than choosing Christ, we choose other things over Christ. For example, I study my Bible if, if it's not going to be too hard for me to study my Bible or if it doesn't get in the way of some other kind of thing that I would rather be doing. I'll come to worship with God's body if I'm not tired or if I don't have some other event that I've scheduled in place of that. I'll put into practice the principles of Scripture. I'll put those things into practice in my life and in my home if they're not too uncomfortable for me or if they don't cost me too much. I'll follow the commands of God and what God commands of me if it doesn't endanger my own desire for physical preservation. In other words, distraction is easy. Going back on what we were, going back to what we were or what we know to be less difficult the old easy life, all the while convincing ourselves that we are good, godly Christians. In other words, it's easy to say we believe. It's easy to say we love Jesus. What does that look like? What's that look like in our life? That, that's truly the emphasis here in John chapter 21. What does love look like in your life? What does this belief in Jesus look like in your life? Believing in Jesus means actually following Jesus. Actually obeying Jesus. Actually doing what He has commanded. That's what we find happening here 
in John 21. And I, and I want to kind of set up the, the background a little bit just to get us into this and where we need to be. Because we don't see really the background happening as John writes his narrative here in John chapter 21. But we know from the Gospel of Matthew what is happening and what has happened. Because Jesus has instructed the disciples after his resurrection. He has instructed them that they are to go to Galilee and they are to wait for him on the mountain. Go over to Matthew chapter 28, and notice what it says in verse 16. Right? Jesus has risen from the dead in Matthew 28. The guards are reporting what had taken place. The elders give their counsel to not say anything, that they'll say that someone came and took the body. But the 11, it says in verse 16, the disciples, remember Judas had gone off. He was the son of perdition. The other 11 proceed to Galilee. Why? They're going to the mountain which Jesus had designated. By the way, the word designated there is is the word tasso in the original language. And it carries the emphasis that is the idea of something being assigned. In other words, this was an assignment. This was a a dispatch. They were dispatched to this place. The disciples were to go to the assigned place that Jesus had told him. They were dispatched. They were commanded. Jesus said, go to the mountain. Wait for me. And so when we look at John's gospel in John chapter 21, John is recounting this event When Jesus shows himself to them again, notice in verse 1, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. So John is setting the scene. John gives that introductory comment there in verse 1. This is where, why they're there. This is what Jesus had told them. Matthew 28 tells us he dispatches them to the mountain where they had been before. They know where to go. They know Jesus dispatches them there. He assigns them to go to this place. And so Jesus is going to manifest himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And this is how he did it. And so there they are. They're in Galilee. They've all gone north out of Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to do just as he said. Jesus is going to come to them. He told them that. Go to Galilee. I'll meet you there. By the way, that's always what Jesus does. You say, what? What is always what Jesus does? Jesus always fulfills his word. Jesus said, I'm going to go there. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do. God always does what He says He's going to do. And it is our task as disciples simply to obey. Simply to do what He has told us to do. That's our duty. That's what love means to Jesus Christ. That's the outworking of our faith. The outworking of our belief. I wrote this that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in His name. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we have very life in His name. And the outworking of an understanding of that, the reality of that, is doing what He said manifestation of our love for Jesus Christ is shown in obedience. So I want us to look at this chapter because it all focuses its intent on love being manifest in obedience to Christ no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. And it all climaxes really beginning in verse 15 all the way down through verse 23. That's really the climax of this this chapter. That's what everything's driving towards as we see in the first 14 verses. And we'll look at those as we go along. But we need to look at the scene before that because the scene before verse 15 lays the groundwork for what is said in those final verses. So here are the disciples... They've gone to Galilee after resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are to be on the mountain. They're at the mountain where Jesus had dispatched them, assigned them to go. 
And John says in verse 1, Jesus is going to manifest himself to the disciples, and this is the way he did it. So here's what happened in Galilee. Verse 2 tells us who was there. There were together Simon Peter, Thomas, who was called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples. We don't know who they were, but they were there. So you have at least seven of the guys there were waiting for Jesus. I don't know where the other ones were, but here they are. In verse 3, we get our first glimpse into what happens sometimes with us when we have to wait on the Lord. Notice verse 3, Simon Peter says to them, I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go fishing. And they said to him, oh, okay, we will also come with you. And so they went out, they got into a boat, and that night they fished. Don't miss it. We might even call this a failure to obey. We might call that a failure to obey. That verse sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. That's the, the link to the rest of what's going to go on. Jesus had told them, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. They will know that the, the rest of the world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. And here we see these guys right out of the gate. We see them failing to obey. We're told to go and wait. And they say, we're going to go fishing. You remember what every disciple claimed in the upper room just a few chapters before, before Jesus went to the garden and then got arrested and then went to trial and then got crucified and then rose again. Remember what they all said in the upper room? I will die for you. I will not deny you. I'll die for you. I'll, I'll do whatever I have to do in order to follow you. I'll show my love for you even if it means I have to die. That wasn't just Peter that said that. All of them echoed the same words. And so upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus puts them all to the test. Not because he doesn't know but because they need to know. And so he dispatches them to the mountain of Galilee to wait for him there. And you think about it. I mean, just think about it. From our perspective, that's not a very difficult task. Just go. Go to this place and wait. Just go and wait. And yet, not long after, here they are saying, I'm going to go do what I used to do. I'm going to go back and do what I used to be. I'm going to go fishing. Waiting around doesn't seem to make much sense to me anymore. I'm going to just go do what I've always done. I'm going to go fishing. Okay, we'll come with you, Peter. They go out. And they get into the boat. Seems rather counterintuitive, doesn't it? They knew Jesus was alive. I mean, there was no mystery to that. He had already shown himself to them. They had seen the empty tomb. They had been the beneficiaries of Jesus entering into the room where they were after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. And Jesus appears to them. He comes and he shows himself to them. They had spoken of their love for Jesus Christ. Yet here they are so quickly returning to their old self. They said they loved him, and yet here they are disobeying him. Listen, listen, beloved. You can have all the sentiment in the world when words are expressed. They can sound really good. 
all the great words and all the pithy statements about loving Jesus, but without action, they carry no weight at all. No weight at all. Without obedience, it's only words. Jesus had given a simple test, and they all failed. Instead of waiting, they went fishing. And I love how verse 3 ends. They went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Don't miss it. Don't let that pass you by when you read that, when you think about it. They caught nothing. Why? Because the one who is in control of the situation is not them. They're not in control of the situation. It's Jesus Christ who's in control of the situation. Jesus is in control. He's not simply in control of the fish. He's in control of their very lives. You think about it. Think about the irony of the situation and what's going on here. Now John is placing it here. After all that has happened, you come to this situation and here are these guys dispatched north to go to Galilee to wait for Jesus and they decide to go back to do what they had done most of their lives. These are lifelong fishermen. If one thing they knew how to do, it was fish. And here they are. They'd spent all night fishing, doing what they knew, doing what they were good at before, and they caught nothing. Why? Because Jesus is in control of their lives. They don't get to choose what they do anymore. Jesus is. He had called them to a new vocation. They're not fishermen anymore in the old tradition. They have a new vocation. And so notice what happens. Notice what happens in verses 4 through 11. When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, children, you don't have any fish, do you? And they said to him, no. And he said, well, cast the net on the, other, on the right-hand side of the boat. You'll find the catch. And they, catch, they cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul, in it, haul it in because of the great number of fish. And that disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, Is it the Lord or it's the Lord? So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment on because he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in a little boat for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which, you have, which you've now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. I love the irony in this section. Jesus says, hey guys, did you catch anything? You can almost hear the sarcasm in the words of Jesus. Hey, professional fishermen. Hey, you guys who know what you're supposed to be doing. Did you catch anything out there last night? Jesus fully knows the answer they're going to give. Why? Because he's God. He's the one in control of the fish. Oh, you didn't catch anything? Hmm, that's sad. Well, try the other side of the boat, almost sarcastically. Oh, that side of the boat isn't really any good. Try the other side. That's where the fish are. I mean, the rest of us would have scratched our head and said, what, are you out of your mind? Especially these guys, they would have said, are you out of your mind? And yet, miraculously and somewhat astonishingly, they do exactly what he says. They didn't know it was Jesus. For in some way, he had 
either disguised himself because he's now that resurrected Lord. Some way they didn't know that it was Jesus. Pastor Ned on the other side, you'll catch something if you do that. So they do it. They do what he said. Probably reluctantly, okay, hurry up, just do it. They catch a huge amount of fish. John, notice verse 7, John describes himself, the disciple therefore whom Jesus loved. That's how John describes himself in this gospel. He never says, and I, John, describes himself that way. So this is John who says to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. You ever wonder how John knew it was Jesus? Because no one else could have done what just happened. No one else could have made that happen. It must be Jesus because Jesus knows where the fish are. Jesus is the one who put the fish there. Fish are going to that place because He directs even the fish. No other person could rightly in their right mind with any kind of wisdom say, put your net on the other side of the boat and you'll catch fish. And it happened. So Peter, astonished, realizing that it's Jesus himself puts his garment on, jumps in the water. He can't even maintain his own excitement to the other guys. That's how Peter is. The other disciples are just struggling to get all these fish to shore. They're 100 yards off. I've been to the Sea of Galilee. It's not a whole great distance to be 100 yards out in the water. The water's not even all that deep. And here they are struggling to get all the fish. And when they arrive, verse 9 through 11 There's already a fire there. There's fish on it. It isn't as if Jesus was saying to them, hey, can I have some fish that you might have caught? He already had a fire going. He already had fish there. He already had bread made. He probably just said fish, and it happened. So Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish that you have now caught. Isn't that gracious? Bring some of the fish that you caught. He didn't say, bring some of the fish that I put in the net that you couldn't catch that night because I kept them away from your net. He just says, bring some of the fish you caught. And so Peter goes, oh, I better go help get the fish. And so he goes and helps the guy drag the net in. And of course, the, so many fish they can't even hold in the net, and yet the net doesn't even break. That's the background of what's happening. That's what's going on in in the background, setting up this whole dialogue that we see here beginning in verse 15. This dispatching of the guys to the mountain who can't wait long enough for Jesus, even though they're supposed to and they say they love Him, so they go to do what they think they were good at their whole life and probably were good at, and yet Jesus is causing that to fail for them until He tells them where to get the fish because that's not their job anymore. He has now recruited them for new work. And they need to realize that. And so Jesus says to them in verse 12, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? It's clear now. They know this is the Lord. They know this is Jesus. And they obviously know that they're not meeting Him where He had told them to meet Him. It wasn't like, hey, we'll fish tonight. We'll we'll, we'll catch some things. We'll go back to the mountain and Jesus will never know the difference. No, no. Jesus knew the difference. He caught you in the act. And graciously, by his own gracious hand and his control and sovereignty over it all, he still graciously gave to you. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. John finally gets to the, to the, to the little introductory point that he started out with. This is how Jesus manifested himself to this. He manifested himself to them in this way. And he says in verse 14, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. They'd seen Jesus be raised from the dead. They saw him in the upper room. 
And now here is Jesus manifesting himself to them again in this moment of their failure. A great lesson is coming to them. They had failed to follow Jesus. They had disobeyed what he had commanded them to do. They had failed to show love for him by obeying him. And here is Jesus loving them in spite of it. I think there's a simple lesson there before we move on for us to remember. It's this. No matter how badly we fail, no matter how badly you and I as Christians fail to obey Jesus Christ, there is still an opportunity for restoration with Christ. Doesn't that show it? Show us that here? Here are the disciples who failed to obey Jesus Christ so quickly after the resurrection, and yet Jesus is restoring them. Jesus is pursuing them. Jesus is bringing them in. Jesus is bestowing on them undeserved blessings. He's allowing them to even catch fish. He's already made them food to eat, and He's bringing them in and saying, here, let me give to you. No matter how badly we obey, no matter how badly we fail, there's still an opportunity for restoration. Because that's exactly what Jesus Christ wants. He wants restoration. This is exactly why He came. This is why God, the Son, came and manifested Himself in human form, took on human form so that there would be restoration. Oftentimes when we fail to love as we ought, we think we can't go to Jesus. We think, well, I've, I've disobeyed too much. He wouldn't want me anymore. And yet here we see Jesus, the one initiating the return. He's the one reaching out to them. Even though they are and were disobedient to Him, He reaches out to them. That's what he does to us. That's what he does to us. Reminds me of the words of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where it says, even though we, when we are faithless, he is faithful. When we're faithless, he's faithful. Thankful that God is always ready and willing to restore our relationship when we fail to love him as we ought to love him. I'm thankful, thankful that he's not ready to pounce on me in judgment when I fail. Happens far too often. Why doesn't he pounce us when we fail? Why isn't he just chastising these guys and, and not restoring them at all? Because he had already punished their sin. He took their sin. That's why he doesn't pounce on us, because he's taken our sin. Even the sin of failing, failing to obey. Jesus has already paid the price. And he's alive, and he's ready for restoration. He wants us to run to him. Now look at what he says in verse 15. Because this is the crux of the issue. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus gets to the point. Jesus says to Simon Peter, it's interesting also, by the way, just as a side note here, that the writers of the gospel put Simon Peter, both his, his Jewish name and the name that Jesus had given him, Simon Peter. Simon was his, his old name, if you will, the old name related to his old life. And Peter is the name that Jesus had given him, right? You're the rock. This is, this is who you are. This is who you were. This is who you are. And here, Jesus brings both names together, maybe symbolizing which, which one are you right now, Peter? You trying to be your old self or your new self? And he says to him, Simon, using the old name, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
We're not sure what Jesus was meaning by these. Did he mean the other disciples that were there? Did he mean the fishing gear and all that stuff that he was out doing? We're not sure about that. But he, but he says, do you love me more than these? More than all this. Peter, you say you believe me. You say you, you, you believe in me. You say you'll die for me. Do you love me more than these? course, we know the answer. Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, tend my lambs. Care for my own. Care for my own. You say you love me, Peter, and yet I found you here fishing. I told you to go, and I told you just to wait, to do what I've asked you to do, and here's what I found you. Do you love me, Peter? You know I love you, Lord. Then do what I've asked you. Tend my lambs. We don't know how much time went by between verse 15 and 16, but Jesus says to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I do. And he said, all right. If you love me, then shepherd my sheep. Lead my sheep. Lead them in the way they need to go. Remember, Jesus had said to Peter before the trial, when Peter said, I'll die for you, Jesus said, oh, Peter, Simon, you, you're going to deny me three times tonight before the cock even crows. Or that Jesus said, Simon, Satan has de desired to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. I'm praying for you. And when you are restored, encourage the brethren. I think that's in these words. I think that's here in the, in the old sphere of what Jesus is saying when he says, shepherd my sheep. Encourage them, lead them, take them in the direction they need to go. You say you love me, Peter, then this is what I'm asking you to do. Tend my lambs, do what I've asked you to do. Shepherd my sheep, do what I've asked you to do. Lead them, encourage them. You love me more than these? Again, we don't know how much time went by between verse 16 and 17 as John writes it, but he says to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? I, I, I don't know the dynamics of what might have been taking place around the, the little fire going on there, the dynamics of talk that might have been going on between the disciples who were there and Jesus. I wonder if Peter might have been saying, even after he had said the first time and the second time, you know I love you, that Peter might have been going back to the speaking about fishing and doing the things of the old life and all that kind of stuff. And maybe it's Jesus just interjecting and saying, Peter, Simon, do you love me? Peter's saying, being grieved this time because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then tend my sheep. Care for my sheep. Care for my young ones that are mine. Care for my sheep, those who have grown. Shepherd those sheep. Do what I've asked you. Do what I've asked you to do. Don't worry about others. Notice verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, I think that's an inference to your old self. In your old life, Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself. You used to walk wherever you wish. You used to do what you wanted. You set your own path. If you wanted to go fishing, you went fishing. You were the one who called the shots. But when you grow old, you're going to stretch out your hands and someone else is going to gird you and bring you to where you don't wish to go. Why did Jesus say that? 
signifying what kind of death he was going to glorify God with. Jesus was telling Peter ahead of time, listen, there's a new direction for your life. I'm the one who controls your life. You're to tend my lambs. You're to shepherd my sheep. You're to tend my sheep. You say that you love me. This is your new vocation. You're no longer that old self. When you were younger, you used to do all those kind of things. But now now you're going to go a different direction. Your direction is totally laid out by me. You don't get to choose the path you want to go. You do what I ask of you. This is how it's going to be. This is how it's going to be all the way to the point of your very death. Verse 19 says, when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. That's not a suggestion, that's a command. Follow me. Don't don't get in your own mind that you're, you're, you're tired of waiting, you're impatient about that, the old self comes out, you want to do your own thing. Don't go that direction. You just follow me. You do what I've asked you to do. You do exactly what I've asked you to do because you love me, Peter. Because you believe who I am. Because you've seen me. I've manifested myself to you. I've You've been privileged to be part of those who have seen me in person after I've raised from the dead. You follow me. That's your task. You need to make a choice. You follow me. No matter the cost, no matter the road, you follow me. What's Peter do? Turns around, verse 20, sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. John's following behind. One who would lean back on Jesus' breath at the supper and said, Lord, who is it that betrays you? So John's now painting the picture. We got the right people in the right place. Peter's walking with Jesus. Jesus is speaking these words to Peter, telling him exactly what he needs to hear in order for him to be challenged with the reality of his love for Jesus Christ. And Peter turns around and John's following them and Peter sees him and he says, Lord, what about that guy? (laughs) What are you going to do with him? I mean, you've told me what to do. You've asked me three questions. Do you love me? And I've said I loved you. And you know what's right. You know what's true. You've told me to follow you. It's a command. I get it. I'm supposed to follow you. I'm supposed to be single-minded. What about that guy? Does he get to do the same thing? Is his life going to look like mine? What about John? Jesus says to him, listen. I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. That tells us something about the Christian life. Listen, the Christian life and the reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ is one whereby which we wear spiritual blinders. Not blinders in which we don't know something, but blinders in which we don't look at everybody else. We know exactly what God has called for us, and we go that direction. We don't worry about what God is doing with other people. You follow me. It really doesn't matter what I want to do with my sheep and where I want them and how I want them to be and how your life is in comparison to them. You don't worry about all that. You let me worry about all that. You have one simple thing to do. You follow me. You follow me. In other words, if you say you love me, If you say you believe in me, which means that you love me, then let me see the demonstration through the priorities in your life. I don't know who started the rumor, but a rumor started about John. Verse 23 is saying, therefore went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. If Jesus didn't say to them, they would not die, only that if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Rumors start in strange ways. I remember one time when I was in the military and I was in basic training and I 
for whatever reason, had done a good job shining my boots and we were under an inspection and the drill instructor called me into the office privately to tell me that I did a good job on my boots. And of course, anytime you got called to the instructor's office, drill instructor's office, you thought you were going to be having a shakedown. He was going to yell your face off. And he told me that I did a good job on shining my boots and I walked out and the other guys that were in there were all standing at attention waiting for something to be said. And one guy whispered over to me and he said, what did he say to you? I, and I said, he told me that I need to shine everybody's boots. And he heard me say that. And I did get my face chewed off. I, I think that's what's happening here, that similar kind of thing. I don't know who started this. Maybe it was Peter whispering in the ear of one of his other disciples. But somehow a rumor gets started that John was going to live forever. And that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus just simply said, listen, don't worry about anybody else. You follow me. You see, what do we spend our time doing? What do we spend our time doing? We say we love Jesus. Is it demonstrated through the priorities in our life? What do we spend our time doing? What do we spend our energy in our physical life doing? What do you spend your mind planning to do? Where are our priorities? That's what Jesus is saying. Listen, where are your priorities? You follow me. If you really love me, then show your love of me by loving me with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with your whole soul, with all your strength. Put all your energy that you have into the things that is most central to my purposes, not yours. Listen, beloved, the test of love for Jesus Christ is not through our emotions about Jesus. The test of our love for Jesus Christ is not, is not manifest through how emotional we get about the things of Jesus. It's not sentimentality about Christian things. There's plenty of people that have all kinds of sentimentality about Christian things, emotional experiences that call them Christian kind of experiences, kind of goosebumps that we might get when we sing a Christian song. It's none of that. The test of our love for Christ is determined by how we live. The requirement of love is obedience. The requirement of love is obedience. Peter said, I love you. And Jesus said, then follow me. Now that's the essence of this. That's the essence of this entire chapter. We say we love Jesus, right? This was written that we might believe that He's the Christ and that by believing in Him, we might have life in His name. If we have life in His name, we've said we love Jesus. We say we believe Jesus, then we must follow Jesus. We must follow Jesus. The cost of loving Jesus is everything. It's everything. Following Jesus Christ might in fact cost us our very lives. I never thought we'd think about that in such a way as we have to think about it in our day and age today. Especially here in the West. But it might. It might cost us our lives. And it frightens me to think that right now, even during this entire crisis that we're in, some won't even endanger their physical well-being for Christ. Let alone what would happen if Jesus said it's going to cost you your life. That's the kind of obedience that we are called to as we love Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you love me, follow me. Since we love Jesus, and my exhortation to us is let's follow Jesus. Just follow Jesus. And then John really ends this chapter and this book 
really uh, with an exclamation point on what we looked at this morning. The very fact that we have eyewitnesses to the issue, that we have a certainty of this faith in which we claim and which we can say we follow Jesus and we know it's true. Jesus says, look, this is the disciple who bears witness of these things. I saw these things, I wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. All kinds of other things I could have written about Jesus. If I wrote him in detail, there'd be a whole world full of books. You don't need more of that. You have enough. You have enough to believe. You certainly have enough from your belief to follow. So Jesus says, if you love me, then follow me. Follow me. Well, that's the end of that. What better place to end, right? What better place to end than Jesus Christ calling us to reflect our love for him by following him. Let's pray together. Father, I trust that tonight we have heard from you that we in our time together have absorbed, thought through, and been convicted by the very truth that we see you bringing forth in this very chapter about your greatness, your wonder, and majesty about who it is that we believe, the truth of it, and the seriousness of it. I pray, Lord, that you would help us. For I know you will. Your desire is to present us holy and blameless. You've equipped us to be able to walk in obedience to you. So, Father, as we look to your word, as we submit to your word, Glorify your name in our obedience. Cause us to be courageous, to be bold, uncompromising, not fearing the things of the world, but only standing in reverent awe of you that we might show our love for you by our obedience as we follow you. May you be glorified through it all so that in your name others might Come to know Christ by your power. They too would live for Christ. So we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And in the meantime, may we be obedient followers of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.